All right. Well, thank you, praise team. You did great. I so appreciate everything they're doing. We're growing musically, and it really excites me. All right, tonight, uh, you know I'm going to have you stand one more time, but then you get to be seated the rest of the time, and I alone will stand, unless I preach you to your feet, but tonight, probably not. We're going to talk about the gay issue tonight, and uh, we're in the fifth in our series, Sex, Lies, and Consequences, and Jeff Kelly told me these tapes are flying off the shelf, and just wait till they go radio, because this is an area where the church is under attack. You are personally under attack. And how do, you, how do you get free? You get free by truth. How do you stay free? By truth. Where is the truth? It's in the Word of God. So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. I'm going to talk tonight about the gay dilemma. I'm going to talk very straight with you, very straightforward. And I'm going to tackle this issue as only I know how, which is from the Scriptures. Now, he's going to address this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He's going to address this issue. No. Uh, Kathy just asked me a question, and she, is, she has permission to ask me anything she wants, anytime she wants. So, so I heard this voice talking to me. All right. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. I like it better. Don't be deceived. Those who indulge in fornication or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or, this is not changing for me, y'all. Oh, it did change. No, you changed it. Okay, somebody's going to have to change it for me. I don't know what's wrong. All right, he goes on in the list, verse 10, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now catch that. Now, look what he says. Some of you, what, everybody, were once like that. But you, read it with me, were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Guys, can we see if we can fix this uh, so that uh, maybe we can get that working before? Because i got a lot of pages here tonight. Okay? So notice what he says. This is what you were, but something has happened. You got saved. Now let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Bless it to our hearts and set us free in the mighty name of Jesus. Now, can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. In Jesus' name, I receive your word. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you. You can be seated. If we can't fix that, somebody's going to have to be very fast on the draw, okay? All right. Now, tonight we're going to address the gay dilemma. Why are we going to address the gay dilemma? Am I picking on this topic? No. Here's why. Because the gay world is addressing us. Not a day goes by that we do not hear of endless controversies uh, rooted in the gay issue. Same-sex marriages, same-sex divorces, ordination of gay ministers and priests, uh, gay hate speech, gay marches, born gay, proud to be gay, and so on. Amen? Isn't this the truth? 
Now, I want to be clear about something tonight. I am not up here to condemn anybody. You know me. You know that I don't do that. It's not my way. I'm a restorer. I don't condemn people. So I'm not up here to condemn. But we're going to teach what Scripture clearly says, just as we have in the past few weeks, on the other sexual sin issues. Because this is just one of several sexual sins. It's not the only one. It's one of several. Uh, To name a few, fornication, adultery, and so on. We've already talked about those. Now notice first that Paul lists several sexual sins in these passages in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Adultery, prostitution, fornication, and homosexuality. Those are sexual sins. Now he closes by saying, as we've already pointed out, such were some of you. Now, let me tell you what that means. This means that the people he first um, alludes to, that, that he's first addressing, were not yet saved. When he names people practicing those sins, he's really just focusing in on people who have not yet met Christ. Uh, he's talking about people still lost, still walking in the darkness. And we know this because he next singles out some of the Corinthians that have been involved in these sins but had since been delivered following their salvation. He says, but you were cleansed. You Corinthians who used to be in these things, you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying that when they got saved, Jesus messed with their sexuality. Jesus interfered with and changed their sexual lifestyles. He immediately dealt with that area. That was part of their salvation. Now, he's not saying that if once you're saved, you slip and do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is not what he's saying. He's addressing those that practice these things as a way of life. Uh, These types of lifestyles are symptomatic of lost people practicing these things sexual sins theft cheating and so on this is what lost people practice now uh, Paul is saying that no one can have experienced true salvation who continues in this sin all right who takes pleasure in it there is the difference who takes pleasure in it who does it without reservation without guilt without conviction If you can get out there and involve yourself in sexual sin with no conviction and no guilt and no reservation, I would encourage you to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. Because if you can do it without conviction, if you can get out there and and no problem, i got no conscience issue with this, either you've gotten real far away from God or you really don't have the Spirit of the Lord living inside of you. I'm talking about living in these things happily not like the christian who's messing up and he's always feeling convicted and always got tuck head you know what tuck head is somebody stares at the ground whenever looking in the eye see there's a difference between when a christian sins and when somebody lost sins the lost do it with impunity the christians don't for such a person there truly is no hope they have chosen sin over salvation, bondage over deliverance, guilt over forgiveness, and death over life. If they are out there living that way with no conviction, then they're not saved. Uh, he's also not teaching that saved people won't struggle with some of these issues. Everybody say with me, they do. 
I guarantee you they do. And that's why I'm teaching this, because they do. The apostles' point is that God's will is for our deliverance. That's the will of God. Now, first, let me, let me vent a little bit. We all let me vent a little bit tonight. Because I, I, you know, I hear things, and I, I'm pretty aware of what's going on around uh, me and around our culture. So let me vent a little bit. Um, if I believe that Scripture condemns the practice of homosexuality, just because I do believe that, does not make me a homophobe. I, gotta, I just got to say this tonight. It doesn't make me a hater of gay people. Because I'm not. Now, follow my logic for a minute here. Does teaching against fornication make me a fornophobe? A hater of people that live in sexual sin? No. I don't hate people that live in sexual sin. Now, how about this? Or if I teach that adultery is wrong, does that make me an adultery phobe? No. That's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. I don't hate people who are involved in adulterous relationships or sexual relationships that are immoral. I don't hate them. My heart goes out to them. All right? Did you turn it? Y'all, we're going to have to get in the sink here. You're going to have to watch me now, TJ. i got to have that little mechanism. Jeff, what happened to it? All right. All right, here we go. Jeff um, McLeod, you're going to have to edit this out. I'm talking to my radio producer. All right. Now, here's the fact. This whole spin on homophobia, let me tell you what it is. It's a part of the militant homosexual propaganda war designed to silence all opposition to their agenda. And I'm not saying all homosexual people are behind it. But there is a militant homosexual agenda for America. And this whole thing of homophobia is ludicrous and ridiculous, and it springs from propagandizing the American mind to bring us to the place where we're afraid to say that that lifestyle might be a sin against God, lest we be labeled an ignorant homophobe, something dastardly, instead of just somebody who says, you know what, I believe God's word, that that is a sinful lifestyle. So I'm not going to let it intimidate me, and that's why I'm doing this tonight. I'm not a homophobe, and I'm not a fornophobe. And I, I teach that theft is wrong. That doesn't make me a kleptophobe. <laughs> All right? Uh, Harry uh, Jackson, who I've met personally, a good author, good guy. He's an African-American pastor in another state, and I know him. He, he wrote recently in an article in Charisma Magazine, he said, the gay community has used a definitive public relations strategy aimed at changing the way it is perceived and received. TV programs such as Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I never saw one minute of that one. And Will and Grace. Remember Will and Grace? Have elicited sympathy for gays and lesbians while Christians are increasingly being viewed as bigoted and insensitive. And I resist that. Teaching this does not make me bigoted or insensitive. It means that I care about people's souls and what the Word of God has to say about this topic. Now, I want to just flip the coin a minute. Have homosexuals been mocked, ridiculed, persecuted, and discriminated against in America? Yes. But not by everyone who also happened to think it is a wrong lifestyle. 
just by some, have homosexual and lesbian people been hurt, ostracized, and wounded by professing Christians in churches? Yes, but not by all Christians who also happen to think their lifestyle is wrong. Okay? This church does not do that. As long as I pastor it, it will not do it. I would not let that happen. We distinguish between the sin and the sinner. All right? Now, this is where I want to draw the line. In all cases of sin, all right, no matter what it is, we Christians are called to love the sinner and hate the sin. The gay issue is no different at all. Now, let me go back to the beginning. When we're going to discuss the gay dilemma, the whole controversy over gay, homosexuality, lesbianism, you've got to go back to the beginning. There's an old saying that I like to quote, and it goes like this, when all else fails, follow directions. Now, God has given us an instruction manual. Mine's down there on the chair. But it's called the Holy Bible. That's the instruction manual. Now, that's okay, Bill. I don't need it. Thank you. Uh, To truly understand, and listen carefully to me, because I'm going to take us right back to the beginning. To truly understand and answer the homosexuality issue, we've got to return to God's original blueprint for human beings. That's where you're going to get it. And if you can't go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you've really got nothing to stand on here. Now let's go back. Consider these words from Genesis 1. Look what God said when he made the first man and the first woman. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. Okay? So God created, it goes on to say, man. In his own image. In the image of God, he created Adam. In the image of God. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. Now I want you to notice something tonight, everybody. First, To be made in the image of God means to have an essential likeness or similarity to God. The underlying meaning is one of correspondence. God said, we're going to make man, male and female, in our image. To be made in God's image means that man, the created one, is to correspond somehow to God, the one that created We are to reflect His image. Now catch this. This is what makes human beings different from all the rest of created life. We have been made to reflect the image of God. Okay? We were created to be the image bearers of God. The mirrors that reflect His likeness. You see, when Jesus comes into your life, as you grow in maturity, you should remind people of your daddy you should remind people of your heavenly father as you grow in love and in joy and in peace and in long-suffering gentleness meekness kindness and faith and people see that what you're doing is you're like a mirror catching glimpses of God and reflecting it into the world dogs can't do that cats can't do that cattle can't do that lions and tigers and bears can't do that only men and only women We're image bearers. Very important. 
We are to show forth the glory of God, the reality of God, the character of God. Now, second, every person who is born on the earth is made in God's image. Every person listening to me right now, you are an image bearer of God. Regardless of your race, color, nationality, whether you're rich, poor, educated, uneducated, gender, age, physical condition, it does not matter. If you're a human being, you are an image bearer of God. It's powerful. Man, go downtown to some guy wrapped up in a cardboard box, drinking himself to death. He's still born in the image of God. Everyone, young or old, male or female, gay or straight, everyone is made in God's image. It is your birthright as a member of the human race. Can you say with me, I am an image bearer. right now here's the third thing i want you to know that image is fully expressed not in a man alone but in a man and a woman according to genesis watch this now follow the image of god is fully expressed in the male female together that is there is a sense in which god's image is seen in the relationship the union if you will of a man and a woman It said, male and female created he them in the image of God. I like what Don Williams wrote. He says, quote, here we are at an essential point. God does not create man alone. Neither does he create man, man or woman, woman. God creates man as male and female. And only in community together is the image of God seen upon earth. That is powerful. That's out of his book, The Bond That Breaks. And then he asks a question, will homosexuality split the church? I answer to you tonight, yes. It is. Now, was Adam created in God's image? Yes. Was Eve created in God's image? Yes. And Genesis 1.27 clearly teaches that certain aspects of God's nature are uniquely reflected in the male-female relationship. And this leads to the fourth fact. One purpose of sexual differentiation is procreation. It's not the only reason for sex. But it is what distinguishes the male and female. Why? Because man and woman are to be fruitful and multiply. When a man and woman come together, they imitate God in this way, in their creative activity, in bringing forth new life. They are doing what God did in the Garden of Eden. Male and female created He them to be image bearers. So when you get married, you have kids... You remind every, if you stop and think about it, that's what God did. He said, let there be, and it was. Have you ever, if you've had children, is it not the greatest miracle in the world? You stare at that little baby when that baby is born, and it takes your breath away. It's amazing. And you go, wow, this is a miracle of God. Yes, because male and female created he them to be image bearers. Now, Genesis 2 presents this truth. Adam is created by God, but he's lonely. That's how we're told it it all happened. Now, none of the animals can satisfy his deep need for someone who is like 
himself, yet different from him. So God says it is not good for man to be what, everybody? Alone. So he needed a helper suitable for him, and that helper was not another man. If the helper was supposed to be another man, God would have created another man. But it was a woman, and I'm convinced woman came from when he saw her, he said, whoa, man. <laughs> That's just my little private joke. I, I think it probably happened something like that. Whoa, man. I think he had a, benef a benefit and a big praise the Lord session right on the spot, don't you? Guys, now watch this. Uh, he needed a helper suitable for him. The divine intention in creating Eve is clearly set forth in verse 24. Here's the reason. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to who? His wife. And they will become one flesh. Now, did you know, people say in our day, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. So don't tell me it's against uh, God. Well, let's look at this. Jesus did indeed address homosexuality indirectly. Here's how he did it. He quoted this verse in Matthew 19, verse 5, to the Pharisees. And in doing so, he placed his endorsement on the Genesis arrangement of a man and a woman joined in marriage. His first miracle was done at a wedding in Cana. Jesus endorsed marriage between a man and a woman. And he began this quote, when he was answering the Pharisees, he began this quote of Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. He began the quote by saying, at the beginning, the Creator made them, made them male and female. He said, let's go all the way back to the start. God's original intention was male and female. Jesus said that. Now, in other words, God's original design, His intent was for the union of male and female together to reflect His image, image bearers. Now, the account of creation makes it perfectly clear that heterosexuality is God's design for the human race. Full humanity includes both male and female. Marriage between a man and a woman is thus good and pure and holy. Sexual relations within marriage are thus sanctified and blessed. Now, can I just say it? Homosexuality is therefore outside of God's clearly stated design for the human race. It represents a denial of the twofold nature of man as male and female. It denies God's original intent. It is a deviation in the truest sense of the word. The importance of Genesis 1-2. Listen carefully. And I wrote a lot of this. I laid it out so you could read it along with me because I want to be very clear on this topic. The importance of Genesis 1-2, uh, 1 and 2, both chapters, cannot be overemphasized. It cannot be. You've got to go back to the beginning. It is the foundation upon which the entire Bible rests and is the ultimate arbiter of the homosexual controversy. Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God. Now, to not consult Genesis 1 and 2 on this issue is like having a broken down car and refusing to consult the owner's manual. 
That's exactly what it's like. Say, man, how's this thing supposed to work? If you're not in the Bible, you've got to be one confused cat in our day. You've got to go to the Word of God. Okay? Our view of man and woman, of male and female, of human sexuality, and of homosexuality must be in accord with what these passages, passages reveal. That is, one man with one woman becoming one flesh. That's what God created. Homosexuals cannot become one flesh. They cannot be fruitful and multiply. They cannot adequately reflect the fullness of the image of God and cannot express their sexual drives in a manner consistent with Scripture. The only conclusion one can reach after consulting Genesis 1 through 2 is that homosexuality is completely outside God's original design for humanity. It is not normal as God created normal. And God's the one that created normal. How do you know what's normal? See what God made. The only conclusion that we can reach is that God's design was male and female. There's not another way of putting it, or there is another way of putting it. If God had intended for homosexuality to be the norm, he would have created, and I'm not meaning to be funny here, and please don't laugh. This is true. If he had meant anything else, he would have created Adam and Steve, not Adam and Eve. Now, that sounds like a cheap punchline. It's not intended to be, and I'm not asking, that's why I should not laugh. I'm being very serious. It actually catches the essence of Bible uh, truth. If God created Eve, not Steve. If Steve would have been better, he'd have created Steve and not Eve. But none of us would be here. God created a man called Adam and a woman called Eve precisely because that was to be the pattern for the human race. To substitute a man with a man or a woman with a woman is to distort God's original design. Now, what about this argument? We've all heard this one. This, is, this series is called Sex, Lies, and Consequences. Let me deal with what I think is a lie and some of the consequences. I was born this way. What do you do, Pastor Jeff, if you feel like you're born this way? Well, follow me now. In light of what we've just learned from Genesis 1 and 2, the notion that one is uh, born or created by God to be homosexual can't be. I'm not saying you can't be born with leanings in that direction. I'm not saying that at all. I've got to tell you, folks, I've counseled a lot of people. And I have sat and listened to stories, life stories that have broken my heart. I'm being very honest with you. I've walked away with a heavy heart and said, God, I almost didn't know what to say to that person. People who say to me, I've never been attracted to the opposite sex. I've never, I have never... Uh, felt normal in that way it's always been attraction to the same sex for me how do you explain that pastor jeff well you know what i'm not saying i have all the answers here tonight i'm taking us back to the original design of god okay i'm not saying you can't be born with leanings in that direction because apparently some people are born with strong leanings in that direction or that you can't experience strong te temptations in that direction. You can. Can I blow your mind for a minute? It says about Jesus, he was tempted in all points like we are, 
yet without sin. So believe it or not, there had to even be a flash of a moment in the life of Jesus where that temptation hit him. That ought to make you feel better if you're struggling with that. But here's what I believe about that. If you have leanings in that direction, that is a spiritual character issue. It is not an indicator of something that God created in you. Now, what gives me the right to say that? All right, I'm going to tell you why. I got to lean on the character of God revealed in Scripture. The character of the God that I see in Scripture uh, would never create a person one way and then tell them to live a life totally at odds with the way He created them. There is no way. That would make God a monster. That would make God a tormentor. That would make God a torture specialist. And God is not a torturer. So I've got to go to the character of God I see in the Bible. Only a monster would do that to somebody. We know for certain <laughs> the following facts about God. Here's what we know. God is a God of love. Now, whoever does not, have, uh, does not love, the Bible says, does not know God. Why? Say it with me. God is love. Love could never create a person to live in lifelong conflicted torment. Love couldn't do that. Can y'all, can I have an amen on that? Or an oh me? Love could never do that. And, and, and this ought to encourage you if you're battling this in your life. Don't fall for what I believe is the lie that God made you that way. That's contrary to His character. All right? God is not the author of confusion. That's the second reason. God is not the author of confusion. For God is not the author of confusion, the Bible says, but of peace. It would be a recipe for utter confusion were God to create a person to live in a way that His Word forbids. That's confusion. Here's a third reason. God will never tempt us to sin. Now, I want you to say that with me. God will never tempt us to sin. James said, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and He never tempts anyone else to do wrong. Temptation comes from our own desires, our own flesh, which entice us and drag us away. God would not tell us something is wrong, then create us to break His Word. That would make Him a tempter. And James said, He can't tempt you and me to sin. Now, in response to a question from Larry King about whether gays are born that way, I saw this one night. Dr. James Dobson responded by saying this, quote, What homosexual activists, especially especially would like everybody to believe is that it is genetic, that they don't have any choice. And then he made a great point. If it were genetic, identical twins would all have it. If you have homosexuality in one twin, it would be there in the other. They are twins. And there are multitudes of situations where that's not the case. Now I'm going to come to the real crux of homosexuality, and it's about to get heavy. I want you to say with me, oh me. Because I'm going to talk to you straight about this now. Let's look at Paul's take on homosexuality. Finally, we're coming now to the central passage in the whole Bible on homosexuality, and it's in Romans 1. 
Romans 1 is part of Paul's larger argument showing that all men, all men are guilty before God. He treats uh, the first case uh, of the ir irreligious Gentile, the first one he deals with. Uh, and then the moral man, the one who never gets a traffic ticket, never cusses, the good guy, the good neighbor. Okay? And then he deals with the Jews. So those three, he comes to the same conclusion in all three cases. There is no one righteous. Not one. There is none that does good. No, not one. There is none that seeks after God. No, not one. They are all together gone aside. They are all together become filthy. That's what God says about the human race in Romans 1. The mention of homosexuality occurs in the section dealing with the Gentiles. Now listen to this. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. They started out with images made to look like men, and then they declined from there and went to birds, to animals, to reptiles, to bugs. It's a slow decline down. Now I want to tell you some things about this. First of all, the above passages and the rest of Romans 1 detail what happens in any society that decides to ignore God. And can I tell you right now up front, we are first-hand witnesses of it happening to ours right now. So I'm about to give you a snapshot of where we're headed if we don't have a major revival. And I'm going to believe God for a major revival. But I'm talking about it's going to have to be a major Holy Ghost, devil-stomping, word-preaching. I mean, people by the thousands saved all over the nation. And if that doesn't happen, let me read to you where our country is going to go. As they turn away from God, Paul says, their hearts are darkened. One follows the other. Their professed wisdom only shows their foolishness, verse 22. And they ultimately uh, turn to idolatry, worshiping something other than the true God, verse 23. Paul did not intend this to be a description of Rome or Greece uh, or Russia or America only. It did happen to Greece. It did happen to Rome. That's not what he's talking about. It's a description of any society at any time, in any place, that willfully rejects the God of the Bible. What Paul is talking about is always true in history, always, guaranteed. When you put God out, you're headed to decline. Let's look at it. What is the result of a society turning their back on God? Has our society turned its back on God? More and more and more, militantly and aggressively and consummately, yes. The answer comes in triplicate, verse 24. Here's the first thing that God does when a society says, don't want you anymore, don't need you, don't even want to think about you. Here's what happens, verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. What happens to a society that suppresses the truth about God? 
turns away from his revelation and exalts the creature over the creator, God abandons them. I want that to sink in a minute. Now, is God abandoning his true church? No. His true people? Never. A society that kicks him out? God will abandon them. Now, that's scary to me. I'd rather see hellfire and brimstone. I'd rather see some lightning and thunders and earthquakes as signals of God's judgment. But the worst kind, nobody knows about. He simply lets them go on in their sin until that society is completely given to depravity. No lightning, no fire, no earthquake, no famine. Something much worse. God doesn't intervene anymore. Which leads to moral chaos. Moral chaos resulting in a society that devours itself in its own lust. In this case, God's judgment is to do nothing and let men bring on themselves their own damnation. And they will, and they do. The first result, now let's look at the results of when God gives a a society over. The first result of such divine abandonment is widespread lust. When you put God out, man replaces the closest thing to God there is. And that, one of those things, is sex. The exhilaration, the thrill, that is what man replaces God with. Now the second result is open homosexuality. I'm just reading Romans 1. The Bible clearly states in verses 26 to 28, look what happened. Because of this, man put God out. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned what kind of relations? Natural. Natural relations with women, and they were inflamed with lust for one another. You know what the Bible calls that? Unnatural. I'm just reading Romans 1. I'm just the FedEx delivery boy tonight. Men committed, in, men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves, in their bodies, the King James says, received in their bodies the due penalty for their perversion. Notice he calls it perversion. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. To what kind of mind? Depraved. Now let me tell you what depraved comes from. A Greek word that means void of judgment. It means I can't tell right from wrong anymore. It means I'm in a perpetual fog. I am in a spiritual fog in perpetuity. I can't see. I can't judge. Right is wrong and wrong is right. I can't tell the difference. I don't know. That sound like our culture to you? It does to me. Now, he says, God turned him over to a depraved mind. To do what? To do what ought not to be done. Now, can I say tonight, it's difficult to imagine a stronger condemnation of homosexuality than what we just read. 
Paul states that it is the result of a depraved mind. Paul said that. The action of someone willfully suppressing the truth of God and and surrendering to the impure desires of the flesh. Now, don't get mad at me tonight. If you're going to get mad at something, go to Romans 1, stomp on it, spit on it, tear it out and throw it away, whatever you want to do. I'm just reading it to you. Summing up his entire argument, including the section on homosexuality, Paul says in verse 32 that although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. One translation has it, they give hearty approval to those who are practicing these things that are not natural. This is exactly the situation in America today. If you don't approve of it, you're the one who's wrong. And I mean, our media has swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And our nation is being slaughtered by political correctness that tells us if you don't approve of it, you're not compassionate. You're not loving. But God doesn't see it that way at all. If you don't stand against it and call it what God calls it, then it will destroy the people to whom it has attached itself. This is precisely the situation in our country today. Our nation increasingly not only continues in its own sins, but they hardly approve of those who practice these things. I mean, it's galloping by the day. Now, is homosexuality worse than other sins? I'm headed to the close here. Let me just tackle this one because this comes up a lot. It's sometimes said that God does not single out homosexuality that is no worse than any other sin. And I said earlier in this message that that's true since no extra requirements are laid on homosexuals by God. Anybody who repents or responds to the grace of God will be saved. They may be saved just as easily and quickly as anybody else. God does not discriminate in dispensing His grace. Anyone who comes to Jesus Christ will find their sins forgiven. In that sense, we are all in the same boat. Without Jesus Christ, nobody has a chance. Nobody. But having said that, we must not miss the emphasis of this passage. And I want you to catch this. Widespread socially accepted and socially sanctioned homosexuality is the mark of a society that has forgotten God and rejected His Word. In that sense, homosexuality is singled out for special treatment. Why? Because it is, as one writer puts it, a primary symptom of total moral decay. I heard it taught once that it's the final rung on the ladder down. There's not another rung under it. When a culture says amen to it, sanctions it, is okay with it, you're in Sodom and you're in Gomorrah. I could say a whole lot more about this, but here's the question. Let's get to the good news and we'll close. What do you do with this in light of God's Word? If you struggle with this, what do you do? Now again, God's Word presents a challenge to all sexual sin, not just homosexuality. Every unmarried person is going to have to decide what they will do with God's call to avoid fornication. Every Christian, married or single, doesn't matter. Getting married does not solve the lust issue totally. Can I just be straight with you tonight? tonight? You think, well, I get married, I never have to bother with lust again? You're crazy, man. 
Yes, you will, because we're being bombarded by lustful images, lustful conversation, lustful movies, lustful books, lustful magazines. So you're going to have to make a decision whether you're married or single, what you're going to do with God's call to sexual purity in actions and in thoughts. The call to come into line with Scripture in the sexual arena is not an easy challenge for anyone in this day and age. Remember where it says about Lot, it was so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah? It says that his righteous soul was vexed every single day by what he saw and heard. We're there. Can somebody trapped in the homosexual lifestyle be set free? Everybody say with me. Yes. Remember Paul's words. And this is a great testimony. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Can I tell you something? Paul knew something the Kinsey Institute and modern psychology don't know. He knew practicing homosexuals who had been completely changed. He said so. They had been washed from their sins, their desires had been redirected, and they had been justified before God. And if I was struggling in this arena, I would, I would sink my soul into 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Because there you've got an anchor. Alright? How did it happen? Paul is very clear. It happened through a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. When the adulterers met Jesus Christ, they became former adulterers. When the slanderers met him, they were slanderers no more. And when the homosexuals met him, they were homosexuals no more. Now let me just close with this thought. I'm not suggesting to you, I know better, I'm not naive, that simply praying a prayer and asking Jesus into your heart will suddenly take away the desires that you have given into for years. Nor do I think that coming to Christ will erase the years of learned behavior, because it is a learned behavior. It is not as simple as that. It's not. As a matter of fact, the homosexual desire is so strong. I know this from David Wilkerson wrote uh, from uh, dealing with teens and teen challenge. It was harder to get somebody set free from this than heroin addiction. But he said, yet Jesus does it all the time. The homosexual desire is so strong so intense, so all-encompassing, that it will not easily be conquered. If you are gay, leaving the homosexual lifestyle will be the hardest thing you will ever do. I'm telling you the truth. But I do believe that without Jesus Christ, there is no hope for lasting, permanent change. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the only answer for those trapped in the devastating homosexual lifestyle Read this verse with me, can you? He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I believe that the grace of God can break every chain, can break every fetter, can set any person free from the bitterest bondage. And I want you to know, those of you in here tonight struggling with this or listening by radio, there is no condemnation. We're not preaching condemnation. We're preaching there is an answer and there is a hope and you can be set free by the grace of God and the power of Jesus and the power of the blood and the power of His Word. 
You will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Can we stand together tonight? Now, I'm certainly not going to ask anybody to raise your hands or to come forward, but I'm going to talk to you right now as we close. Will you just take a moment and say, Lord, you know my struggle in this area. I receive the word tonight, the clear word written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, that such were some of those Corinthians, but they had been set free from homosexuality and lesbianism. They had been set free from sexual bondages. And Lord, I receive that word as my word. Help me to walk into freedom and liberty. Would you take a moment and pray as we worship? Thank you, Lord.